This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Hi, this is Todd DeVillo with EM Weekly, and today we have... Amanda Burke from Team Rubicon uh, here with us, and this is exciting to have her on here. A couple things about her that uh, I like is that she's a former Marine, and as a Navy corpsman, uh, I always like hanging out with my Marines, so that's why I like Amanda too. So, so Amanda, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with emergency management and, and Team Rubicon and what your role is now. All right. Um, so my name is Amanda Burke. It's great to meet everybody, I guess. Um, so I... I'm a Marine Corps vet. I was in the Marine Corps for four years, and I did signals intelligence. Um, I did reserves for a little bit after that, but have since kind of gotten away from that. Um, I bounced around in the corporate field for a little bit doing uh, government consulting and supply chain management, and now I'm lucky enough to work for an organization called Team Rubicon, um, where we are a disaster response organization, and we obviously work in the emergency management field. Um, and I manage Region 3, which is the mid-Atlantic region, so from Pennsylvania down to Virginia and from West Virginia over on east to, Del- to Delaware, and I manage all of our readiness and response functions within within that region. Well, that's great. Um, and I know you've gone to and, and been involved with a few uh, of the larger uh, scale disasters or, or events that we've had here lately. So what are the biggest challenges that you've seen in emergency management uh, and resp- and emergency management response, I should say? Um, great question. Um, I think honestly, at least my personal challenges with it are just, I think it's a relatively new field and not a lot of people know how to operate with each other. Um, I was, uh, essentially introduced to the emergency management field in 2013 when I started volunteering with Team Rubicon and went to the Philippines to support our response to Typhoon Haiyan. And I've had military experience, which is very similar to the way that the EM field is broken down in terms of command and control and execution and other things. But it was still a new field for me. So coordinating with other you know, international partners or their local partners was still a challenge. And so I'd say that's one of the biggest challenges faced within the emergency management community. So do you think like the challenges on the international response are similar to the challenges of a domestic response? I know that, like, for instance, Superstorm Sandy and Katrina... Both of those were getting assets from all over the country, and I know that there were some logistical reasons or logistical issues with moving people around. What is that like as compared those type of storms to a uh, uh, to something like the typhoon over in the Philippines? Yeah, I think the challenges are similar, but they get more complex, at least for um, for us, at least, or for anybody that's coming into the area. You know, domestically, Hurricane Sandy or Katrina, um, I was not on those, but I. The, Based on my experience in smaller local responses here in Region 3, I can only imagine the complexity of, you know, people new, like you mentioned, organizations coming in to try and support, finding out who's in charge, what area people are covering, what homeowners have, have been assisted and, and which ones haven't and what the main priorities are um, is just, you know, a very small start to, to coordinating response. Um, and then internationally, it's the same thing, but it's, I think it's a little bit more complex because then you're trying to figure out who's in charge as well. You know, you immediately have hundreds, literally, of response agencies coming in to try and 
do good and try and help the community. But if you have too many and they're not talking to each other and they have conflicting priorities, then it actually becomes more of a uh, a challenge in itself. And, and you end up focusing more on the collaboration, I think, than than actually assisting the the community. So you have to figure out you know who to talk to, who's doing what, and and how to make the biggest impact um, that way. Yeah, that's true too. I guess that's some of the, some of the same stuff here. One of the things that we try to do uh, domestically is is have those meetings prior to any disaster, so we know who's doing what, and before we stand patch to patch, uh, you know, on the on the on the disaster ground, that we know who's kind of doing what, what rules are. So I guess that's a you're learning that as you go along on the international response, huh? Yeah, and the goal is kind of the same thing, you know. I think as you become you know, my experience is relatively new and, and Team Rubicon is relatively new. So we're not, you know, we're still developing those relationships. I think the ultimate goal, no matter where you are, whether that's, you know, here in Washington, D.C. or Richmond, Virginia, or the Philippines, you want to you want to have relationships and contacts and have worked with the local emergency management partners before you go in, because that's the, you know, that's the way you're going to be more effective at responding is definitely building the relationships, understanding who does what, so that when you get on the ground, it's less coordination and more execution to to respond. Well, what are some of the challenges as far as getting in front of domestic emergency managers, you know, say at the, I mean, local, county, state, whatever level you need to get to? What, what, I mean, I know that we work within the VOADs um, and the COADs, uh, but I mean, sometimes those organizations are, are uh, sometimes a little kind of difficult to get through as well. But what what are the how do, how do you guys break that barrier? Yeah, I mean it, it varies honestly by each state, by each county and by each city. Um and it also varies by how um how involved those cities, counties and states and the vote are in are in actually involved with preparedness and emergency management. So, you know, in some of the more developed areas um uh, with the vote where the vote is relatively active, it's it's relatively easy. Virginia is a great example where you know, the Virginia Department of Emergency Management works very, very well with the the VOAD in, in that area. And that trickles on down to the different counties and districts. And so we have a great relationship with the leaders of those organizations. But then we also maintain relationships with the local emergency management officials, whether that's the you know official EM, the police department or fire department. I think it's important to to not only to not just build a relationship with one specific entity it's to make sure you're you're hitting all of those fronts and then it's i think it gets a bit more challenging when you get into areas of pennsylvania is a great example where they're broken down some areas might not be as active and some counties are not coordinating with each other so you have to figure out who's talking to who and 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 kind of get and explain your capabilities are and what you can do so it can be a little bit challenging as you get down to the more local level trying to figure out you know who's active and who's not I guess I like a loaded question, but I'm trying to figure out how to to phrase it. I mean, is it hard to stay out of the, out of those internal politics or the, that type of stuff as a nonprofit organization trying to do stuff or is it easy to stay? I mean, like I, I was just trying to think of it. I know that specifically in my experience between city, between city and between, um, uh, agency between agencies, sometimes in the same city, there's politics. I could imagine what it's like as a nonprofit to try to jump into the middle of some of that stuff. Yeah, I will say that luckily, um, at least from my experience, it's been really easy to stay out of politics because for us, at least, it's not about the politics. You know, it's about our mission. You know, we are a disaster response organization that unites the skills and experience of first responders and military veterans to rapidly deploy emergency response teams. So whenever we, there is potentially a conflict of interest or a potential um, uh, 
you know, political relationship there. We, we kind of steer clear of that and are very focused on here's the capabilities we can provide. Here's how we can provide them. Here's when we can provide them. And here's how quick we could get there. And here's the impact we can get, we can have. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's the way to do it is to, it's not about the politics. It's really about um, building the relationships and focusing on the impact that you can have with the community and, and trying to stay out of that. Yeah. I, I know that, um, you know, sometimes as as, as <laughs> professional merchant managers, for lack of a better term, or the the city and state and county, sometimes we're too big and too too bold for our own our own good, and and, and we can't get out of our own way sometimes. And it's nice to have uh, to be able to lean on some of our volunteer organizations. And uh, and uh, I know that from personal experience, working uh, with trying to pull some people in for some of our large uh, scale fires that we've had here on, on the west coast, and and working amongst those groups, and and uh, sometimes we have to check ourselves in the EOC to say, Hey, look at these people are here trying to help us out. They're not trying to take away anything. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also important, you know, as a nonprofit to remember that what, or any other uh, agency that's, whether it's the city or a nonprofit or even a business is that when you're going in to help your focus and mission, you know, is just a small piece of the pie. When you talk about like wildland fires and even larger disasters, you know, you're what you're doing in one area has a greater impact and other people have, other bosses and there's a bigger picture that that they're that they're aware of. So I think, you know, as much as you want to stay out of politics, it's still important to remember that people are considering 15 million other things while you're focusing on one piece of the pie. So you have to make, you know, be aware of that when you're going in. Yeah, that's for sure. So what what lessons have you learned and you're able to uh, implement as far as going into the events and what can the whole community of emergency managers and emergency responders take away from some of those lessons that you've gone through either as an organization or even as yourself um you know that's a great question um and i think it narrows down to the buzzwords that everybody typically uses you know definitely preparedness um and that includes not only just uh you know learning ics and collaborating with partners but it's also because we are an organization that relies on volunteer um, leaders and volunteers to come in and assist it's about getting them trained and engaged beforehand so that the first time you know that we're seeing them is not when we respond to a disaster. We know who they are, we know what they're capable of, and we can we know what to expect when they get there. Um, and the other thing is to, you know, make sure that you have your best leaders on the ground. I think it's easy to kind of get lost um, in things when you're there. Morale can get low because, you know, coordination, other things can, can make an impact on what, on how you're effectively operating in the area and other things. So making sure you have good leaders that are there to support your team and coordinate with other partners are, are some of the, the two, I guess, buzzword lessons learned that <laughs> that I've learned throughout the years. And that's great. That, that is so true. Like what kind of um, leadership development does Team Rubicon uh, do with their, with their leaders? Um, so we have a few different avenues for that. Um, obviously, we have the more professional development of the ICS courses. So we do, you know, put our leaders through ICS 300 and 400 and encourage them to go out and get their task books for other command and general staff positions. Um, internally, we have a fellowship called the Clay Hunt Fellowship Program that is designed for our leaders to they essentially go through a year long leadership development pipeline where it's broken down into three sections. Um, the first uh, section is where they spend spend about four months focusing on themselves as leaders. You know, what are your strengths? What are your opportunities? Um, how do you uh, 
how do you react to situations and how do you continue to grow yourself? Um, and then the second aspect is learning more about the organization. And then the third section of that is they actually do a capstone project with the organization. So they take everything they've learned from those previous eight months and incorporate it into a department of the organization. And they have a the opportunity to essentially develop not only themselves, but a a, a piece of the organization um, to make us better at responding to disasters. So that's another aspect. And then internally within each region, um, we have leadership development opportunities within the positions that they hold. So, you know, we have about 70 staff members and the rest of our organization and our operations are actually run by volunteer leaders. So they're guys who have full-time jobs who come out and support the team in their free time. We have about 400 volunteer leaders who run those things. And a lot of the leadership development for those positions is done through direct mentorship. So it's, you know, somebody takes on a leadership role and a more senior leader will come in and mentor them through the emergency management process. And then also understanding what, you know, what it is that they want to get out of this position and helping them achieve that. That's, that is good stuff right there. So real quick for those, I mean, it's kind of an odd question coming for me because I, I, I understand it greatly, but I, I, I want to share this with everybody else. Can you, Explain the Clay Hunt Fellowship and who Clay Hunt is and why it's important to Team Rubicon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Clay was a one of the um, original members of the team of eight that went down to Haiti. Down to Haiti. So Jake, Jake Wood and Will McNulty were our two co-founders, but Clay was Jake's best friend and joined them while they were down in Haiti and um, helped define the organization from the very beginning and was very influential in um in the development of the organization over the first couple of years. Um, he was very focused on service, um, encouraged everybody that he knew to, you know, just because you take off the uniform doesn't mean you're done serving and encouraged everybody to continue to focus on serving others, whether they were in uniform or out of uniform. Um, in 2011, Clay took his own life and that actually created a huge shift within the organization um, from an operational standpoint and even for, and from a cultural standpoint. Um, so we shifted our operations from solely international opportunities to domestic opportunities. You know, there's more disasters that happen every day here, and we wanted to provide more opportunities for veterans to get involved domestically to serve their communities because it helps provide a sense of purpose, community, um, and self-worth um, by by being able to serve others at home. So that was so so Clay's Clay's death definitely shifted our focus there to impact more veterans here at home. Um, and then even culturally, it made a little bit of a shift for us to, you know, make sure that, yes, we're focused on the mission, but it's really about the people that we're, that we're asking to serve as well. You know, we want to make sure that we provide them with opportunities to engage in between disasters um, because they can get purpose at home through, through other means and connecting with people. So we've incorporated the Clay Hunt Fellowship to kind of take that, that uh, spirit that Clay had for the sense of service and tried to continue that throughout the organization. One other kind of follow up along with the, with Clay Hunt. This is something I've actually seen work um, through the uh, through the Team Rubicon network is the um, the assist program and and how how realistically that the the, the members of Team Rubicon with each other um, have, are really out there for helping each other. Can you explain um, the assist program? Why it got started with Team Rubicon and and how it's implemented and and. Uh, any success stories with that? And those answers and more when we come back from our break. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties. 
regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. 315 and 314, there is at least one person that's been shot. Somebody is still shooting in sight. Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed Tac Med. They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to and managing large-scale incidents, HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs, leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs, and the staff of High Speed Tac Med will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed Tac Med today, 805-419-0024. Again, that's 805-419-0024. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Welcome back to the program. Can you explain um, the assist program, why it got started with Team Rubicon, and, and how it's implemented, and and uh, the success, any success stories with that? Yeah, absolutely. So the assist program, it stands for Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. Um, it is a two-day workshop that is actually designed by another organization called Living Works. And we reached out to them and started incorporating the training into um, our organization because one thing we found even you know prior to and post Clay's death is that a lot of our members were more likely to reach out to each other um, in times of crisis or need after they'd gone through a response um, with each other because you you know you live, breathe, eat, and work beside somebody, you you develop a close bond. Um, so a lot of our members were receiving crisis calls from volunteers um, at different points, and they didn't necessarily know how to handle it. So we adopted the ASSIST program, which is a two-day suicide intervention program. Essentially, walks um, anybody, so you don't have to have experience in it at all, whether veteran or civilian. Um, It walks you through how to identify that somebody might be thinking of suicide or just having you know, suicidal thoughts or actions or being in a low place. So how to identify those indications, how to directly ask somebody the question of whether they're considering suicide or not, and then finding ways to get them the support that they need. Um, So that is the two-day program to date. I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I know it's over 400 members that we've trained and assist over the last two and a half years. And the result that we've seen, we we don't keep track of specific cases or names or anything like that. But as someone who is a part of the program and on the receiving end of a lot of these calls about three years ago, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the number of cases that have resulted in either the actual action of suicide or um, folks not knowing how to handle the situation. So Mm -hmm. I... And they're being handled at a more local level, which is the actual goal. You know, I would rather somebody who lives down the street receive the phone call so that they can go check on them than somebody who is four or five states away. Um, so we've seen a more localized response in terms of people taking care of each other um, in that aspect, and it's been pretty successful. The other thing that we incorporated too, in addition to the assist program, is we incorporated wellness managers. So they're certified mental health prof- professionals who are volunteers with Given Hour. 
And they essentially are Team Rubicon volunteers who work with the, the region and state leadership team to serve as consultants when somebody does reach out. So if I received a phone call from a volunteer who was considering suicide or just looking for somebody to talk to, I could reach out to my wellness manager and she would help connect that person with you know a free service in the area that they could connect with and get help. That's so awesome. I know that that's one of the things that... Uh you know, our 22 a day and, and the buddy checks that we do and stuff like that. And, and I know that uh, it has been successful for a few people. So that's that's some powerful work right there that Team Rubicon's already doing, even outside of the disaster response uh, world. Um, one more question regarding some of the stuff that Team Rubicon does. Now, there are fundraising. I mean, it's a nonprofit, and, and Team Rubicon needs to get funding from other organizations and from individuals. So if you're out there wanting to donate, Team Rubicon is a great place to send money. I know that, uh, uh, just full disclosure, that's where a lot of my money goes as far as our, my donations go. And uh, I, I tap on my family as well, so they donate as well. So that's a, <laughs> you know, so if you, if you want to donate, you can go ahead and donate. I do encourage it. But there are other fun things, too, like you can do to get involved, like the Run is One program and then now the Tough Mudder um, and other physical activities like that. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yes, absolutely. Um, so... Run is One is a run that was actually founded. Um, I mean, it's got a few different stories on its origination, um, but it is a. it was about four years ago when we started doing Run is One. And one of the pivotal things was, you know, in support of Clay, um, who, again, was very influential in the organization. And he was actively involved with um, the Wounded Warrior Project. Uh, the mission continues in Team RWB. Um, uh, actually, I think I might have added Wounded Warrior Project in there later because we're now partners with them. Anyway, um, the original founding members are Team Rubicon, Team RWB, um, and the mission continues. And it was a way, an opportunity that we took to bring those organizations together that are taking um, veterans and getting them out and celebrating collaboration amongst the community. So Run as One is a run that takes place this year, I think, in over 170 different locations. And I think it was over 5,000 folks that came out. And the beauty of Run as One is, although there are specific locations that we do host larger events, you can run anywhere. So if you were on deployment or if you got a work event in some other city and location, it was just you. You know, you can get out and do a three mile jog and you're still running with with the rest of the community. Um, you can also fundraise while you're doing it, which is which is a, a great thing. Um, but really, it's about collaborating and building that community with with other partners and other veterans and civilians in the space. Um, and the Tough Mudder is a relatively new partnership. It just uh, I think we just announced at the end of last year. Um, so, I mean, if you haven't heard of Tough Mudder, I have not run one yet. I'm a little bit scared. I'm not going to be honest. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. You know, I got, <laughs> I went through a bunch of obstacles and got yelled at when I was in the Marine Corps. I'm not saying I want to volunteer my time to go do that again. Um, <laughs> so, but it's a great event. Um, they have full Tough Mudders and half Tough Mudders and they range in different size and scale, but it's essentially, you know, jogging and going through different obstacles. Um, and it's a team building they have them all throughout the country. And from Team Rubicon standpoint, we are now a national partner with them um, over the next two years. And we set up at different events throughout the country. So we are going to have, as an example, there's a Tough Mudder in Philadelphia on May 20th. And we will have volunteers that are running the event. We have 
you know, 20 tickets for our volunteers to, to run the full Tough Mudder, and then we'll set up a, a tent event outside. So whether you actually want to get physical and get dirty, or if you just want to hang out with the team and share the story of Team Rubicon, there's, there's different options for you. But, you know, it's a team building event for us, but it's also a fundraising opportunity for sure. It, you don't have to, it's not required, but individuals do have the option to create their own fundraising page and kind of get competitive with each other and try and raise money for the organization. Before we ask the last question, uh, I would like if anybody wants to get a hold of you or Team Rubicon or join, um, how would they do that? Yeah, so you can always go to our website, which is teamrubiconusa.org. Um, we also are on Facebook and Twitter. If you just type in Team Rubicon, um, that's T-E-A-M-R-U-B-I-C-O-N. I'm glad I spelled that right. Um, it will come up. Um, and you can always email to uh, my email ab- address is aburke, so A-B-U-R-K-E at teamrubiconusa.org. Um, and I can direct you to... Um, to whatever you're looking for, or there is the office phone number as well that you can find on the website. So a bunch of different ways you can get involved with the organization. That's great. And do you have to be a veteran to join Team Rubicon? You do not. You know, you can see in our mission statement, but we have veterans, we have first responders, and then kick-ass civilians is what we like to call them. And our typical, our breakdown of membership is about 70% veteran and 30% first responder and civilian. So we'd love to have anybody that wants to come out and serve the community. That's awesome. And it's a... And... One thing, too, is I know I've had this question um, and I asked Todd is how to get involved with uh, or how to get a job in emergency management and volunteering with organizations like Team Rubicon is a great way to get started. So there's a lot of opportunity there for you, if even if you are a, uh, a kick-ass civilian. Is. Yeah, no, and we've had a lot of guys who, specifically here in Region 3, who I think of four people, actually six people off the top of my head that have gotten positions with emergency management over the last year because of what they've done with Team Rubicon. So it's definitely a good way to gain experience to get into the field. That's great. So Amanda, last question, and it's going to be the toughest question of the day. I always preface it this way. So what book or website or reading or poem or whatever would you recommend to somebody who wants to get involved in emergency management, Team Rubicon, uh, disaster response in general? So I don't have a great answer to that question. I knew you were going to ask it because you told me before we jumped on. Um, but but honestly, uh, so my favorite types of books to read are about uh, history, so like Civil War history or about specific leaders that were uh, what they did and more about them and how they like handled certain actions to learn what they did or what they didn't do. Um, and so the recent one that I read was actually Rebel Yell, which is um, a great book. Uh, I definitely, it's about General Custer. So I definitely recommend reading that because what you learn in the history books isn't always what actually happened. So, um, I guess that's the best answer that I have to your question. <laughs> that's actually an answer because, you know, looking back at what, you know, past leaders have done, you're going to glean something from those people. So especially successful generals and outside of Custer's last stand, Custer was a really successful field general. So nothing taken away from him. That's for sure. Yeah, no, he was. And there's definitely, he was definitely into the politics too, which I did not know. So it's very interesting to learn about his interactions and how they were different as a field leader and as a non-field leader. So it's got some good lessons learned in there. I read something somewhere, maybe it was in that book that they wanted, or he wanted, or people were trying to push him to be the, a president. Is that, did you learn that too? Or am I not correct? I didn't see that in there. I know he definitely, he was trying to elevate his status in multiple ways. So I wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. (laughs) 
I think I saw that in the History Channel or something like that, but, you know, that's where I learned most of my history from. So, anyway, Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for those great answers. I'm looking forward to hearing from you again, and, and maybe someday I'll see you on the big one. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you for your time. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe, the host of EM Weekly's podcast. If you're trying to reach people in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we are bringing in guests from around the world to talk about best practices and trends in emergency management and response. We also have the blog on EM Weekly's website and the EM Quarterly e-magazine. For more information, please email brian at brian at emweekly.com. EM Weekly is a division of the WEMT Institute. <music>